Well, there is something sweet about the humility of singing about our need for amazing grace. The question is, how long does it take for you to go from reflecting on God's grace, thinking humbly about who you are in Christ, how long does it take to get from that version of yourself to the judgmental, self-righteous, I-know-it-all, I-know-better-how-things-should-run version of yourself? What do you think your time is? Uh, this week I thought it might be about five minutes. And then I realized I was being way too gracious to myself. How long does it take before you've got to jump in and correct the story that your spouse or your son and daughter are saying because they didn't tell it quite right? Uh, how long until you have to offer that unsolicited feedback because they need to hear it? And how quickly do you talk to yourself, maybe not out loud, to why things are wrong and people aren't handling it the right way. For me, it's about five minutes. I, we'd just flown into Cincinnati. I was so excited because we were going to be on time for once. So as we arrive, the plane comes into the tarmac, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be home actually at the time I said I would. As we arrive, the announcement comes over. Tension, ladies and gentlemen, tension. Uh, sorry, we're going to be uh, delayed for just a moment because uh, there's no one to drive the ramp up to the tarmac, up to the plane. Huh. So I waited. About five minutes. I turned to the guy next to me and I said, you know what you know would be nice? If there was some kind of new invention or technology that would have allowed them to communicate through invisible airwaves to the people in advance to let them know we were coming. I wish they would invent something like that. He goes, yeah, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? I'm sorry, we're still delayed. It'll be another five or six minutes. I wonder how much money they're wasting here because of the inefficiency. I said to the guy next to me, I pulled out a calculator. And we together had a good old time uh, actually calculating how many people were on the plane, what we thought the average annual uh, salary was, and there had been about 15 minutes by now, so we divided by four, and we calculated exactly how much time and money they were wasting. It took me about five minutes to get self-righteous and judgmental. There was a Sunday school teacher one day teaching the Bible story about a Pharisee. She said there once was a Pharisee who came to synagogue. And he prayed out loud, thank you, God, that I am not like the sinner. And the teacher told the class, the kids, about how important it is not to be a Pharisee, not to be self-righteous or judgmental, to look down on other people. It was a great lesson that day, and the kids listened really, really well. At the end of the lesson, she said, does anyone want to pray? And little Jimmy raised his hand, I'll pray. Okay, Jimmy, go ahead. Dear God, thank you that I am not like the Pharisee. Judging people all the time. Archie Bunker once said, I'm tolerant, I like all those inferior people. What we're going to find out today in the passage we look at is that it is a short trip to our inner Pharisee. It is a short trip to get from the gracious, humble, grateful version of ourselves to the little Pharisee that lives within us. It's a short trip. So what is a Pharisee? Well, let me show you. Here's a picture of me uh, with some Pharisees. So that's back when I had a goatee. So that's me and some Pharisees hanging out. Pharisees were known as the separated ones. 
And I think it's helpful because the Pharisees get demonized, but Jesus was probably a Pharisee based on his interpretation of certain passages. Paul was certainly a Pharisee. The Pharisees aren't all bad. In fact, they actually tell Jesus that people are trying to kill him at one time and help save his life. There's a lot of different types of Pharisees. And the Pharisees, instead of demonizing them as those people I'm not like, they were people who wanted to obey God. So they were going to separate themselves from other people. Separate themselves from, from wrong beliefs, separate themselves from wrong practices. They wanted to live for God by separating themselves. The problem is these good things they did to separate themselves became the very source of their self-righteousness because they began to depend on those things, what they were doing for God, for their identity. And three different factors came out of these Pharisees. So we're going to look at this passage in three passes today. First pass tells us a little bit what a Pharisee does. Number one, a Pharisee is constantly comparing himself to other people. The Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with, uh, asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And we're going to find in the story is that this is a Pharisee party with proper protocol, with Pharisees doing Pharisee things. Somebody's going to come into the party who doesn't belong in the party. She doesn't have the right protocol. She doesn't behave properly. She doesn't belong here. And a Pharisee was really good at walking into a room and comparing where they were in the pecking order, where they were in the righteous order, who had the most boxes of scripture on their head or the most wrapped around their arm. They were constantly comparing themselves to others. But comparing always leads to either criticism or conceit. Either you're criticizing other people who aren't as righteous as you are, or if somebody's better than you, you say, well, they're not as as righteous as they look. Or you criticize yourself because you can't live up to the standards you've set for yourself. Or conceit, you have lived up to the standards you've set for yourself. Wow. So the first thing about a Pharisee, if you want to see the Pharisee in you, is you're constantly comparing yourself to others. Secondly, a Pharisee is constantly shooting all over himself and others. Careful how you say that one. A Pharisee is always shooting all over themselves. I should do this, I shouldn't do that, you should do this, and you shouldn't do that. And here we find some Pharisees shooting all over Jesus. Here they are. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, a, a prostitute at the party, he said to himself, oh, it took about two minutes. He's talking to himself, saying, this man, Jesus, If he were a prophet, if he really was from God, he would know. He should know. He shouldn't hang out with her. He shouldn't be associating with her. He shouldn't think it's okay for her to be at this party. And here he is, shooting all over Jesus. Because that's what Pharisees do. They should all over everybody. If you struggle with perfectionism, if you struggle with guilt and condemnation, I promise you that you've got an inner Pharisee that shoulds you to death. And then you've made yourself miserable, so then you should all over your family and everyone else, and you are genuinely surprised they're not really excited about the feedback you're giving. There's seven types of Pharisees the Talmud mentions, and so I think the only wise thing to do is not say, am I a Pharisee, but what kind of Pharisee am I? Seven types. The shooting Pharisee parades his good deeds. People should do what I do, so watch what I do. The delaying Pharisee, the delaying Pharisee the Talmud uh, talks about is one who's doing a good deed. And he, he's doing a good deed so he makes everybody wait in line. Wait, 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 I know, I know you're in line for me at Kroger, but right now I'm helping a young boy. 
So everyone else must wait as you watch the good thing I'm doing. So you don't mind delaying other people to make a big deal about what you're doing. The bruised Pharisee, he so wants to not lust a good thing that oh, he walks into a wall trying to avoid sin. In order to do a good thing, he ends up doing a stupid thing. The pestle Pharisee walks with his head down in false humility. Look how humble I am. I've never had a good thought about myself ever. Oh, I wish you could be as humble as me. If you come to my house, I've got a humility trophy set up. It's got my name. It blinks. Chad, Chad, Chad. Most humble man in the world. It's not genuine humility. It's actually I'm proud of how humble I am humility. There's the ever-reckoning Pharisee who's always trying to undo his bad with his good. He's ever-reckoning. Yeah, yeah, I did some bad things, but I'm going to make up by doing some good things. It's all about self-righteousness. So when I do some non-self-righteousness things, I'll make up for it if you give me another chance. The ever-reckoning Pharisee. Another one is the fearful Pharisee. He, he's terrified of God's judgment. He lives under a constant blanket of guilt and shame, and he's fearful of God. Or there is a type of Pharisee, even the Talmud encourages us to be, which is the loving Pharisee, who wants to obey out of love for God like Abraham did. So whether you wrestle with false humility, needing more attention for your good deeds because God owes you or others owe you for what you've done, or you need more attention maybe than normal, or you live with blanket guilt and shame, God has want to encourage each of us to move toward a different type of obedience, what the Talmud called the loving Pharisee. Jonathan Haidt did a study, it's interesting, he's a sociologist, and he was trying to figure out why people couldn't empathize with each other. Why is it that conservatives and liberals have a tendency to not even understand each other? He did this study, and here's a conclusion he came to with a, well, let me get the third point, I'll come back to that. Sorry, I forgot about that. Third point of a Pharisee is they're constantly criticizing others to reinforce their inner idols. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, talking to himself again, Jesus would know this if he really understood what's right. The reason Pharisees criticize other people is to reinforce their own inner idol. So if you want to know what your inner idol is, it's real easy. What do you criticize the most? That's your inner idol. So what happens is while you're sitting at the airport, what you're doing is you're criticizing other people. Not efficient, not well thought through, not well organized. I criticize those people while at the same time reinforcing my own. I wouldn't have handled it this way. I would have been. I would have communicated better. I would have, I would have. So you criticize others in order to puff up your inner idol. And your idol's different from mine. So while you may criticize how people look, other people may criticize how people use power, you may criticize people's politics, you may criticize how sensitive people are or how insensitive people aren't, but what you criticize speaks to what you idolize. And so for the Pharisees... They could not believe that Jesus would let that kind of woman, a prostitute, into the house. Because that's not the kind of protocol. It reinforced how good they felt about themselves because they would never do that kind of thing. Emmett Fox says, criticism is another form of self-boasting. Now to the study. Jonathan Haidt said, moral foundations theory is like taste buds of the moral sense. Everybody values compassion and fairness. They did studies. Everyone values compassion and fairness, liberal or conservative, everybody. But then there are these three others, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus subversion, and sanctity versus degradation. 
And what we find is that conservatives give relatively high marks to all five of these. They value all of those, whereas liberals reject those last three. What we found is that conservatives and moderates were very acute, accurate rather, at filling out as though they were liberals. They were asked, if you were in thought this way, could you fill out this? But liberals were not accurate filling out as though they were conservatives because they just couldn't get their mind into the idea that authority is somehow related to morality. They think it's just oppression. So that's one reason why there's a difficulty, an asymmetric difficulty. So in this study, and he actually came from a liberal perspective, was trying to figure out why we couldn't understand each other. Because we take the three things off the list and say these are most important and I can't imagine that the other three matter. And you're thinking, thank goodness, a study that proves I'm better as a conservative. Oh, you just did the same thing. Now you're saying, because I value all five, I'm better than the people who value three. And that's my point. The human tendency to take whatever information you can to make yourself better than somebody else, it's built into the human experience. It truly is a short trip to our inner Pharisee. So we're going to look today at the two characters in the story, the Pharisee and the prostitute. And Jesus says that the reason we're going to study this is because when you understand it, you're able to love much. You learn how to love God better, love other people better by dealing with the Pharisee and prostitute that lives within you. Start with the, prayer, the Pharisee. We'll dig down a little bit more. In general, my definition of a Pharisee is when I think God owes me because of what I've done for him. And man, do I struggle with that. God owes me circumstances, owes me answers to prayer, owes me comfortable life. He owes me because of look how moral I've been, look how Christian I've been, look how, how hard I've tried, look how much I've done, look how much I've given, look how much I've sacrificed. God owes me because of how much I've done for him. So one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. She stood at his feet, behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. So is this an inappropriate scene? Can you imagine? We're trying to have a dignified conversation and somebody is crying the whole time. We're trying to have a meeting of Pharisees. We've got a prostitute in here. Does anyone have like a, a bouncer at the door to get the riffraff out of here? Crying? The smell of this oil? Is this a beautiful scene or is this a tragic scene? Well, again, three more aspects of a Pharisee. Each one will make you maybe a little more convicted. It does for me. Number one, when you see yourself as righteous, meaning you are the source of your own righteousness, you begin to question if God is who he says he is. See, he says to himself, this man, Jesus, if he really were a prophet, if he really were from God, he would know who he's talking to, what manner this woman is. And you begin to do the same thing. If God really knew how righteous I am and how hard I've tried and how much I've worked, he would be giving me better circumstances. He would understand that I try harder than others. And so what happens if you have pharisaical tendencies, you have a distance between you and God because you're angry at God a lot of the time. Or it may be a passive-aggressive anger, meaning you just distance yourself from him. But you're really angry because God owes you and he's not keeping his end of the deal. So you keep pulling out the contract. Haven't you seen what I've done here? Then you start wondering if God really is who he says he was because he's doing nice things to bad people and he's doing some not, not good enough things for good people. 
The second thing, if you're a Pharisee, you don't just question if God is who he says he is. You begin to sort other people's acceptability through comparisons. You sort people. This man, if he were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is, what sort of woman this is. And you have a sorting mechanism. We all have one. You sort people based on their beauty. You sort people based on their sins. And what's the unforgivable sin? I'll tell you today what the unforgivable sin is. The unforgivable sin is whichever one you don't struggle with. That's the unforgivable one. You sort people. The, the bad ones are the ones you don't do, and the good ones are the ones that you... And so, so other people are sinners. You, you've got weak spots. Other people are sinners. You've got some rough edges. Other people are sinners, critical, gossips. You got some work to do. You sort people based on your sorting mechanism, what manner people are. Several years ago, when my daughter graduated from high school, we decided to take a, a family trip. My parents have been talking about going to Alaska for 20 years. And they said, we want to go to Alaska. Will you guys go with us? And we'll, we'll, we'll take Sierra with for graduation. So we made that her graduation gift. We get to Alaska. And as we're going on this tour, we go by this grocery store. They said, the interesting thing about this grocery store is they have a mechanism for the opening of the door that sorts human hair versus animal hair. Why would one need that? So instead of just walking up and having a movement detector that opens the door for you, the sensor detects whether you have animal hair or human hair and opens the door if you have human hair. And I'm thinking as a naive from the lower 48 Citizen of America, well, that's probably because all the dog sleds, you know, everybody's on dog sleds go to work every day. No, not a lot of dog sleds. No. I think, well, maybe they got a lot of cats up here. In, 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 uh, no, not a lot of cats. A lot of dogs, maybe. No. I said, well, why do they need that? He said, well, several years ago, a grizzly bear came out of the forest looking for some food, and he walked up to the door, and ning, ning, the motion detector opened up, and rawr, he's grabbing a cantaloupe, rawr, he's grabbing some food, grabbing some Coke, you know. And so they, they actually put in a sorter into the Alaska a grocery store to sort between animal hair and human hair. And I want to propose to you that something happened in your past, and you made something you used to make yourself feel better or to avoid pain, you sort. You sort people. And there's nothing wrong with discernment about your past. But when it becomes self-righteous, you've sorted people in the sense that you're better than them because you do or don't do what they do. Three, Pharisees fail to recognize their own neediness. She is a sinner, not so much me. And Jesus is going to turn this on its head in a second. Because knowing what they're thinking, he turns and says, i got a story I want to tell, a parable. Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, well, teacher, say it. I'd love to hear what story you might have that would apply to the situation. And now we move from the the Pharisee to the prostitute. So Jesus tells the story. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Denarii is a day's wage. So take whatever you make per day, multiply it times 500. That's the amount. So one person owes the creditor 500 days wages. The other one owes God 50 days wages. The creditor comes to them both who don't have any ability to pay and says, I will forgive your debt. Wow. Which one will love him more? 
So we say, well, the one who was forgiven 500. And Jesus said, you have judged righteously. So what's the application? Oh, I know the application. Here we have a prostitute who owes God 500, the bad person. She's going to be able to love God more because God's forgiven more. The Pharisee has only you know, done about 50 days wages against God, so he can't love God as much. That's not the application. The Pharisees are equally indebted to God, if not more so than the prostitute. They just don't know they owe God 500 they need to actually be aware of how deeply indebted by their self-righteous, judgmental attitudes they are. They have replaced God as their justifier with their good deeds as a justifier. They've become their own savior. They have become their own God. They equally owe God 500, so they will not be able to love much because they don't know how indebted they are to God. See, a prostitute is almost fundamental different mindset from a Pharisee. A prostitute is when I know I owe God because of what I've done to him. Oh my goodness, what I've done to him. And I owe God because of what he's done for me. He loved me despite what I've done. He cared for me. He sings song over me. He adopted me. He, he's proud of me. Where, where the whole world so goes, well, there's a prostitute. He's like, let me introduce you to my sister. Let me introduce you to my daughter. Let me tell you about my friend. And in light of what he's done for you, despite what you've done to him, you say, I owe God my life, my affections, my pocketbook, my calendar. I owe God because of what he's done for me. And they love much. Versus the Pharisee, God owes me and I'm kind of ticked off. He's not giving me what I deserve. Who doesn't love much? It is a short trip. You're in a Pharisee. You still give yourself five minutes? How long does it take for you to go from your humble version of yourself to the self-righteous talking to yourself but other people version of yourself? Maybe it's a few seconds. Two things Jesus then addresses with the Pharisees. And I think it's two things he wants to address to us. He's going to then do unto them the way they've done unto her to help them realize, and I think here's his goal. He wants them to realize how indebted they are to God. Number one, prostitutes are blinded to their own wrongdoing. That's why they don't know they owe God 500. Prostitutes are usually aware of their wrongdoing. I mean, you can say, I, did, I wasn't aware that I was being self-righteous. I wasn't aware that I was complaining. It's a little harder to go, I wasn't aware that I was sleeping with many people. You don't wake up and go, oh my goodness, what happened last night? I slept with five people. It's not a surprise, right? But you can hide your self-righteousness. You can hide your judgmental attitude. You can paint it up and you can make it actually look like a strength. So look what Jesus does. Look at, he contrasts you language versus her language. He's trying to show them they don't even see how indebted they are. I came into your house and you gave me no water. You, weren't, you didn't even do the hospitable thing. You didn't give me a kiss. That would be the equivalent of a handshake in that culture. A hug when you're coming to the door. There was nothing about what you did that was welcoming or accepting. And you don't even know, aware of it. You've sorted this woman based on her past. I'm now going to sort you based on your behavior in the last hour. You did not anoint my head with oil. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't. You should have, you should have, you should have. You're all about shoulds? Let's apply it to yourself. Oh. 
And what he's trying to show them is how indebted they are to God so that they will understand grace, so that they can love much. But Pharisees are blinded to their own wrongdoing. And Pharisees are blinded to what genuine love even looks like. So he then uses from the you language to the she language. Do you see genuine love here? Because that's what's going on. You see a prostitute, I see genuine love. She has washed my feet. You didn't. She has not ceased to kiss, but you didn't. She has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. And Jesus says, you're sorting people based on how big their sins are, how, how bad their past is. That's not how I sort. I sort based on how well you love. And as I look at this last hour together, there is one person that stands heads over shoulder of everybody else. And there she is. She knows how to love well. Because she's been forgiven well. And now Pharisees, that you realize how poorly you understand your own wrongdoing, maybe you'll understand your need for grace and mercy so that you can begin to love well. So if there really is a Pharisee in me, not just one, six of them apparently, how do you deal with your own inner Pharisee? I think the best way to address your inner Pharisee is to become aware of your inner prostitute. You see, the Pharisee says, I would never be unfaithful. I would never do that kind of thing. And yet God, all through the Bible, says that when you choose another idol, another God, when you make yourself your own good deeds, your own justifier, you have committed adultery with him. I don't need God to be my savior. I've got my own savior, me. I don't need God to be my justifier. I'll justify myself. I don't need God's righteousness. I'm righteous enough. I don't need as much mercy as they do because I really have done quite well for myself. When you start seeing your good deeds and your status, your performance, whatever it is you criticize or sort people by as an idol, you realize that idolatry is unfaithfulness. And you've been as unfaithful to God as that woman was to her husband or future husband if she wasn't married. And suddenly it doesn't mean prostitution's no longer wrong. It just takes the self-righteousness out because we're all humbled at the cross equally in need of grace. And equally in need of his grace to elevate us far above what our little puny good deeds really could have done. The best way to combat the Pharisee in me is to become self-aware about the prostitute within. But see, Pharisees, we've all developed these pharisaical tendencies that psychologists call deflection. Have you noticed how critical you are? Stop being so oversensitive. You didn't even have to think about it. It was the other person's fault. Or you minimize it. Sure, sure, that's a problem what you're talking about. That is something I need to deal with. But but I, I don't think it's quite as big as you think. It's called minimization justification, rationalization. So Pharisees rarely can see their Pharisees. So if you'd say, as you came in today, well, thank goodness I'm not one of the Pharisees, you probably are one. Pharisees are the ones who don't know the Pharisees. The best chance you have of not being a Pharisee is presuming you are one and saying, what part of my pharisaical tendency am I working on? That's the only way. But here's the good news. Whether you're like the Pharisee who's, who tries to earn their way to God through their good works and self-justification, or whether you're the prostitute who says, I have a bad self-image, 
These two people look so different, but they're both the same. They're both building their life on self. Self-shame, self-hatred, bad self-image, self-righteousness, self-justification. And the problem with all of them is self. When you move to God-righteousness, you might say, well, everything I've done in the past, I just, I just can't love myself. I can't forgive myself for what I've done. You think you're going to add to Jesus' beatings by beating yourself. That's what you think. You have an idol, and it's your performance. I'm going to perform my way out of my shame, and you won't. You need to trust that the God who says he loves you and forgives you is your real God, and you're going to believe his forgiveness, not your own ability to beat yourself up for another decade. And vice versa, the self-righteous one needs to stop thinking your righteousness has anything to do that's going to improve on God's grace or his crucifixion. And look to the grace, and here's the good news, no matter what you've done, you might say, Chad, you don't know what I've done. I am the worst of sinners. Fantastic. You're the worst of sinners here today? You know what that means based on this passage? You're going to be able to love Jesus better than anyone here. If, if, research shows that people who who grew up in shame-based cultures, shame-based families, or depression have trouble apologizing, and here's why. You don't want to own or apologize for what you've done wrong because you say, if I do that, I'll think bad things about myself and I'll even have a worse self-image. And so you don't apologize, you don't own. But the problem is you didn't go far enough because the grace of God says God's already forgiven you of everything that's happened. So as you discover things and own things and apologize for things you've done wrong, you go, wow, something else I've already been forgiven for. And so the more you find out about what you've done wrong, the more you realize how much he's loved you. And so you push through the ownership and through the uh, confession and you experience the grace. Oh, he's forgiven me so much. If you don't own anything, you're not going to know what you've forgiven anything. The more you own, the more you understand his grace. So push through to the good stuff, to the great stuff, to the grace stuff. Otherwise, you're going to turn into a Pharisee. You'll take a good thing and turn it into a self-righteous thing. You remember Eric Little? Got real popular in the movie Chariots of Fire. When I run, I feel his pleasure. He was known probably the most in the movie and in real life, competing in the Olympics, that he was not going to dishonor the Sabbath. He wasn't going to run on Sunday. Even though the Sabbath is on Saturday, according to Exodus. But he's not going to run on Saturday, Sunday. And the qualifying events on Sunday for the 100 meter, he wasn't going to do because he was a Christian. And I think he genuinely wanted to obey God, genuinely wanted to honor God. So instead of running the 100 meter, he got switched over to the 400 meter, which he won the gold. Powerful Christian example of someone saying, I want to I obey God out of my love for God. And I believe that. But how do you not become a Pharisee? After he won that gold medal, he went back to China where his parents had been missionaries, and he lived there with his wife and kids. His wife became pregnant. This is prior to World War II, certainly prior to America entering for World War II. And as he was in China, things were getting dangerous, so he sent his wife, pregnant, and kids to Canada. He was going to follow about a week later, but he didn't make it out. Japan came into the area he was in, and he suddenly was a POW. Eric Little, the gold medal winner, in a POW camp of the Japanese. 
He'd be there for several years. And with families there, the kids wanted to play hockey and they wanted to play basketball. And so he became a referee. Eric Little, the referee for the kids' games. But they wanted to play on Sunday. And he refused because of his strong conviction and for good reason, wanting to obey God, not to referee games to have the kids play in the POW camp on a Sunday. But he noticed that when they didn't play, they were pretty ornery and irritated and ticked off and they fought a lot. And he really wrestled with this. Which is better? Keeping the Sabbath or having the kids have a little bit more peace and love for one another? And he decided not to be a Pharisee. He still believed that the Sabbath was holy, but he decided that harmony and community was even higher. So Eric Little, for several years in a POW camp, refereed sporting events on the Sabbath. The war wasn't over yet, but when Winston Churchill began to win, he negotiated a prisoner exchange that one prisoner could be removed from the camp. And that honor went to Eric Lytle, who had not seen his family for years. And when the day came for his release, they came to pick him up, the one prisoner that would be exchanged. He said, I'm not going. I've given my space to this pregnant woman in the camp. And she got out that day and he didn't. And he died at age 43 in that camp, having not seen his wife or children again. His niece, who was eventually released, spoke about watching this man of God who loved God but wasn't a Pharisee, had strong convictions but also could adapt it to the circumstances. She said, my uncle, Uncle Eric, he was like Jesus running in tennis shoes. When you understand grace, you understand that Jesus at any time could have got off that cross. At any time he could have said, I'm out of here. Angels, I'm done. The people aren't worth it. But instead, when the time came for him to step off or to get out, he instead said, I'm going to stay in the prison camp. I'm going to take the punishment. And then he said to you and I, you take my spot. And through his death, we were made free. Because we owed him far more than 500 denarii. We owed him our life. We're so indebted to God, we could never imagine it. Both as Pharisees and prostitutes, we're equally, woefully, inadequately unable to satisfy the righteousness of God. So he took the punishment for us so that we could begin to live a free life and a new life in grace and forgiveness. And people around us would see, people of conviction without a doubt, but people of love and people of grace and say, I want what they have. It doesn't mean we're never Pharisees. It means we're getting increasingly quicker at catching ourselves being Pharisees, repenting of the idols that drive our pharisaical tendencies. And we come back to the cross and say, God, thank you again for your grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful reminder of your grace. God, may it affect our attitudes toward our spouses. May it affect the way we parent, the way we talk to our, our parents when we're, when we're mad at them or we think they're being inappropriate. May, may it affect the way we talk to our customers, the way we talk to our clients and our bosses. May it affect the way we organize our time, 
how we organize our checkbook. God, that these are expressions of gratitude based on your grace. They would be people who walk in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you all next week.